What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DeCebedo, and this week we have two stories for you. First, we explore how regulations trying to prevent the use of modern slavery in our supply chains are putting pressure on companies. And then we discuss how Native American nations are being affected by mining companies. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. There are these periodic moments when the opaque and hard-to-trace globalized supply chain that runs through us all bursts open with a revelation that a well-known brand has been selling products made using forced labor. The headline usually reads as, Allegations into the use of forced labor at Company X. Company X takes steps to ensure all its products meet supply chain labor standards. Of late, a number of countries implicated in forced labor controversies have been those supplied by factories in the Xinjiang region of China, where allegations of the mass detention of Uyghur minority continued to be made against the Chinese government. But forced labor is an issue that is prevalent throughout our world. There is chronic underpayment in the retail industry in China, exploitation of working visa holders doing farm work in Australia, the exploitation of immigrant workers in the U.S., the list goes on. Fortunately, New rules and regulations are being enacted in a number of jurisdictions to address this continued blight on our society. And so companies are now being pressured to better disclose on their supply chains so they can better find and eliminate coarse labor in their supply chain. And just as investors have become more vocal on climate change, so too have they become more vocal about social injustices that have been inadvertently furthered by the companies that they own. My colleague Morgan Ellis recently published a report on this called Unseen Laborers, Addressing Modern Slavery in 2021. When I talked to him about it, he mentioned one big reason investors are focusing more on modern slavery this year, uh, more than ever that is, is due to those new anti-slavery regulations that have been enacted all over the world. That, coupled with efforts by companies to disclose more on human rights abuses in their supply chain, have provided more transparency on this issue than ever before. So countries like the US, um, the UK, France, Netherlands, Australia, um, all have some form of modern slavery reporting where they are required to publicly disclose what they are doing in terms of assessing the risks of experiencing modern slavery in their supply chains and how they're dealing with that. Um, some countries like France and Netherlands are going further with their um, requirements for due diligence reporting, which means that companies are having to take a proactive stance on looking for and dealing with modern slavery in their supply chains. So with the increase of this information coming out, investors in particular are having more access to data and they're requiring more data to make their investment decisions so they themselves aren't getting caught up in modern slavery instances um, in, the, in their portfolios. So Morgan modestly mentioned two countries there, France and Netherlands. But there are also other regulations being enacted that companies have to pay attention to in developed markets. There's the California Transparency in Supply Chains Act and Australia's Modern Slavery Act 2018. In fact, the proportion of market capitalization, basically the money that are in the markets of the MSCI Acqui Index, and that's kind of a globally representative index, that is subject to slavery reporting requirements, has increased from 42.3% in 2010 to 66.7% as of February 1st, 
2021. And there are even more regulations now coming against investors who will have to ensure the companies that they invest in properly report on their exposure to modern slavery in their supply chains. Um, the EU is, is tabling um, a human rights due diligence um, legislation as well as with the sustainable finance disclosure regulations coming out. There are metrics in there that are looking at human rights and um, forced labor. So any, anyone to do with the EU is going to have to be disclosing this information. Um, and there's these very particular metrics around modern slavery where investors will be able to see this. There'll be an increasing scrutiny and increasing visibility on companies that are not only not doing enough, to assess their supply chains, but also not doing enough to rectify any um, any instances of forced labor and non-slavery that they're finding. So these efforts to reduce forced labor have primarily, not completely, but primarily come from the import side of the supply chain. Europe, the US, Australia, places that have often exported their factories to regions with less stringent labor laws. So what these countries are trying to do is they're saying, you can export your labor over there, but we're going to try to ensure that none of your products are made using what we deem as poor labor standards. And so let's say you're an investor and you're kind of curious as to, or, you know, let's say you're just a human being and you're curious about what companies might be at risk due to these new regulations. Well, you can look at the ones that have a high exposure to supply chain labor controversies, ones that have instances of human rights abuses in their supply chains, or find themselves always having to deal with accusations of using coarse labor to make their products. Then you can look at what percentage of those companies' revenue are sold in these regulated markets. So what Morgan did is he did this, and he found that a number of companies fit this bill. But there were six companies that especially relied almost exclusively on revenue generated by goods sourced from countries where forced labor is prevalent, while at the same time selling such goods in markets that have a low tolerance for compulsory labor. And so the companies that um, we sort of saw were that they were primarily large discretionary goods retailers and distributors within the U.S., like Costco, um, Target, or Walmart. But they also include some restaurant more restaurant and food retailer type companies like Starbucks um, in the US and Tesco in the UK. And so there's always nuance to this. And the nuance is that many of those companies are taking comprehensive and progressive efforts to try and stop the use of forced labor in their supply chains. Starbucks, for example, has strong policies on sustainably sourcing its coffee, and it has been participating in various initiatives to support and address labor standards and working condition requirements for their suppliers. They do this thing called the Coffee and Farmer Equity, cleverly named Cafe Practices Program, and they have the Sustainable Coffee Challenge. And the problem is, is that these vulnerabilities still persist, which companies often note is due to how the supply chain is set up. It's a systemic risk that everyone is susceptible to. So we often have companies that are industry leaders in disclosures reaching out to us and saying that they are being penalized for these disclosures, that everyone in their peer group is involved in obtaining the same commodity that's using forced labor. It's just that those with better disclosures are being put into the crosshairs because people know 
about the problem. I asked Morgan about that, whether he thought there was this paradox in the market. Companies need to provide investors with more transparency in their supply chain, but in giving that to them, they leave themselves vulnerable to accusations of misdeed, where those that stay silent can kind of slide under the radar. Definitely. Um, More disclosure will definitely lead to an increased level of scrutiny, but that won't necessarily be bad, even if companies are finding um, modern slavery in their supply chains, as long as they're doing something about it. So I think this will be increasingly along the lines of modern slavery isn't necessarily something that is going to be a huge negative impact on a company, as long as they then work and demonstrably work towards um, sorting that out and either rectifying what has happened and making sure that it doesn't happen again. And so to break the fourth wall here, when Morgan and I were talking, we I asked him after he said this, I said, well, what do those efforts look like in practice? And here's what he said. So it would be having to engage with the companies down in their supply chain, um, visiting those companies and making sure that the conditions that were set that led to the modern slavery, um, like I guess overwork, low pay, setting up a, a situation where those um, those settings aren't there. So paying paying a proper wage, hiring enough people to get through the work, um, and just having that increased visibility will allow a sort of a targeted approach for that. So that targeted approach might mean better control over companies' supply chains through direct ownership plans for the farms or factories that they obtain their products from. Because if you look around at supply chains and you look at studies from survey companies like McKinsey to logistics management, you find that a large majority of companies in the U.S., around 90% of the Fortune 500 by one study, use third-party suppliers for some of their operations. What is often cited is cost as the reason that they do this, but there can also be geographical constraints. For example, Starbucks literally cannot grow its own coffee in Seattle. And so maybe, when possible, this risk of modern slavery, coarse labor in a supply chain, is subverted by direct ownership of the supply chain. And while companies might say, well, this is going to make things much more expensive, if we are to take the growth in socially responsible investing as an indication of anything, it's that investors and customers want to try and solve these problems, even if they're hard and even if they might be a bit more expensive. And they are apt to reward the companies that do so best because, like with most ESG investing, socially responsible investing, the assumption is that there is a systemic risk that is just increasing. And and we could see with traceability, um, as that becomes more possible, as disclosures become more of a mandate, these companies may see the long-term costs of not addressing this both moral but also economic problem outweigh the short-term costs of doing so. And that's what I think investors are signaling by trying to move toward companies that are doing a better job at at least disclosing where this problem is in their supply chain. There's this debate happening with regards to renewable energy. We need it. It's necessary to halt climate change and reverse the associated biodiversity losses. But producing the required technologies and infrastructure to do this will drive an increase in the production of many metals, creating new mining threats for biodiversity. And that is because, and I'm going to list all these metals here, okay, because it's good for us to know that these renewable energy projects that are indeed needed do still use a lot of resources, and many of those metals are needed in higher quantities than we currently have access to. So lithium-ion batteries need cobalt, lithium, nickel, 
and manganese. Electric vehicles and wind power need rare earth metals, and solar panels need cadmium, indium, gallium, selenium, silver, and tellurium. I hope I pronounced all those right. If I didn't, do not tell me. And all these technologies use aluminum and copper. And many worry that without proper planning, such as ensuring new mines do not disrupt pristine environments or biodiverse hotspots, and that they are properly run, sustainably run, that these new threats to biodiversity may surpass those averted by climate change mitigation. There is an additional layer to this, because like many other commodities in the world today, a lot of these new proposed mines that we are putting up to get those rare earth metals, to get that aluminum, to get that copper, are located in areas either owned or culturally significant to native communities. This is especially true for mining in the U.S. So I wanted to talk about this today because my colleague Sam, who joins me right now, uh, just finished researching how mining companies are currently affecting Native American nations in the U.S. And Sam, uh, first, I was wondering if you could sort of get into how these mining companies affect Native American communities exactly, kind of lay the land for us. Well, among the controversies that we track, we find that mining, along with oil, gas, and utilities, are the industries that account for the majority of those controversies that affect Native Americans. And in terms of mining companies, it's really based on um, a lot of these projects that different indigenous uh, or Native American communities are opposed to. And, and you know, we find these in, in a variety of places, Arizona, Minnesota, Michigan, Alaska. And, you know, one mine that is very important to consider is this resolution mine. The mine is, is, is projected to supply up to a quarter of the, of the U.S. copper demand. Um, it's, a, it's a joint venture between Rio Tinto and BHP Built-In, and they've already spent over $2 billion to, to kind of permit and develop this, this project. Uh, but it faces a lot of opposition, uh, mostly because the design as is is going to destroy uh, or replace the Oak Flat campground with a, with a giant crater, like 800 feet deep and almost two miles across. Um, and it's also not actually directly on the reservation. It's, it's actually about 30 or 35 miles away from the closest reservation. And we actually find that, you know, actually the majority of U.S. reserves for important uh, metals for the just energy transition are actually within 35 miles from, from different reservations. And that, that includes things like, uh, you know, um, almost 90% of copper reserves are within this, this area, uh, 97% of nickel reserves, et cetera. Right, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because the, the fact that these sites are adjacent to, but not technically, by the U.S. government's claim, because the U.S. government kind of owns these lands in, in a lot of the sense, especially in places like Nevada, um, is that these areas are not in the nation of the respective native community. And that's important because usually what companies do to move into a disputed land area or one actually owned or culturally significant to an indigenous group is by saying that um, they will pay a fee for disrupting the area uh, or they will provide jobs. And, and so what usually happens um, is that the community says, well, we assume that these people are going to move in anyway, so at least we can get a fee, at least we can get some jobs off of it. But but that might not happen in this case. Do you think that because of that, this increases the chances for community opposition or leaves the Native uh, American communities, uh, nations more vulnerable? So there are actually very few metal mines on the reservations. And in, in contrast, um, there are a lot of fossil fuel 
uh, operations, oil and gas, um, coal, and and it's actually the most common industry, uh, at least the heavy industry in these communities. Um, but despite being, you know, energy sector, the energy sector being such a large part of the economies in these areas, poverty rates are still very high, and the communities have suffered from pollution, and really COVID was also a sad reminder of, of the health disparities that these communities face. Um, and it could get even worse uh, for mining companies if, you know, for, if the mining companies cause disturbances, they, it could be even worse because they, since they aren't on reservations, they're unlikely to pay these mineral royalties. And yeah, I mean, they may provide some jobs, uh, but it's hard to prevent, you know, it's, it's hard to create a benefit for everyone um, in, in an equal way. And, um, you know, a lot of people are unlikely to want to, you know, part, give up on part of their culture just so that their neighbor can get a job. Yeah, and this is this is a serious thing for these companies, right? I mean, if everyone remembers, there's this mining giant called Rio Tinto. And recently in 2020, it parted ways with its chief executive after there was this huge public backlash off uh, after the company destroyed this 46,000-year-old sacred aboriginal site in Australia. It blasted through two rock shelters. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but it, it was in the Zhukan Gorge in Western Australia in order to mine iron ore. And evidence of human habitation dates back there tens of millennia. And so everyone freaked out, um, got really angry at them, and it was a huge blow up for the mining company. And, and that seems like it could be kind of pertinent to what could happen here. Uh, can you quickly you know, take me through what's going on with Rio Tinto? Uh, what are the long-term repercussions of uh, their actions? Yeah, so ever since Rio Tinto destroyed the Junkin Gorge uh, sites in um, the Pilbara region of, of you know northwestern Australia, they faced a lot of repercussions. A lot of their stakeholders were upset, all the way from their shareholders to their to their employees. People were upset with what happened, um, and there's been pushback, and you know several of their executives have left because of this, including the CEO at the time. The chairman of the board has also said that he will step down. Um, and Rio Tinto, you know, in a lot of ways, they they do the right things to a certain extent, like in terms of uh, their policies and then the programs. They have a indigenous advisory group. Uh, they conduct community impact assessments, and they have a, a cultural heritage management system that um, develops, you know, working procedures for all their different projects. Um, right. So they kind of attempted to rectify it, but it, it still created this massive backlash. Um, and, and this is going to be a long-term issue for mining companies and renewable energy companies, but, but also governments as well. I mean, U.S. President Biden is extremely supportive of the push for renewable energy, as are a lot of other countries, because they need to lower uh, their country's effective carbon footprint. So can you, to kind of close this out here, can you give us the scale of this problem? How much is mining expected to increase? What are the limitations on even land availability and where you think companies are going to have to go uh, in the future? There is a lot of expectation that metal demand will grow along with the, the build out of, of kind of this new energy economy. You know, everything from electric vehicles, electric storage, uh, just a build out of, of new modern energy infrastructure will likely put a, a, a large increase in demand on certain metals. 
Copper, for instance, is expected to grow by 350 percent by 2050, and and cobalt, nickel expected to grow even more. And we're seeing that you know there is likely to be a, a major supply crunch for a lot of these metals um, around the world, and also certainly in the United States. Um, the problem is a lot of the remaining untapped resources, you know, at least on Earth, <laughs> are largely um, they're still there because either they were too low a grade of a you know a deposit uh, to make economic sense uh, in the past, or they were in areas that were just too hard to get to uh, for one reason or another, and um, and sometimes in bo- in, for both reasons. Um, and low grade ores likely to create more waste, more pollution relative to to the amount of metal that they'll produce uh, compared to you know some of the old you know mines we used to have. And the ones, the deposits that are hard to access may raise engineering challenges, uh, and also they may just be in conflict with with local interests. So companies really need to figure out how to address this issue. And and you know, if they're going to make good on a on a business that's you know solving a global problem, they really have to address this at the local level. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Morgan and Sam for talking to me about this week's news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to rate, review us, subscribe, do all the things you do to make podcasts popular and so more people listen. And that's good. Uh, Also, don't forget that we have a MSCI podcast as well as an MSCI ESG research podcast. And the MSCI podcast is called the Perspectives Podcast. And here's what's happening this week. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Bass, host of the MSCI Perspectives Podcast. This week, we celebrate our 50th episode. A milestone because, well, people like round numbers. We also had a chance to eavesdrop on two brilliant guys. Rick Marshall, whom I'm sure everyone who listens to ESG now knows very well, and Tim Humans of EOS at Federated Hermes as they discuss this year's unusually active proxy season. We hope you'll join us for what is a really fascinating conversation. You can listen to MSCI Perspectives at MSCI.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.